If you would like to, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to see his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thank you for that reading, Grayson. Uh, good morning to each of you. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to come together and and worship with each one of you, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that I have to speak to you this morning. It's my prayer, and I thank Noah for the prayer on my behalf, but it's my prayer that the things that we talk about are going to help you in your walk with God today. I spent much of the last year studying and presenting on the Sermon on the Mount, the collections of Jesus as he began to preach about the kingdom of God. And he began to preach about this new way of life, a new way to live in relationship with God and your fellow man. One that is uh, focused on bringing blessing in life. And with all of those studies, I started with this verse, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the second half or the second part of this verse, about what it meant that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And as Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, what it meant that the kingdom had arrived, what it meant to live by the values of the kingdom. But today I want to spend time looking at the first part of this verse, the word repent. That's going to be our subject this morning. Repentance or repent is one of those religious words, something that we see in the Bible a lot, and it has a lot of familiarity. And so it comes with a little bit of baggage with that. We can think about uh, maybe conjure up different memories or things that, that we uh, remember from this word, repent. And that baggage isn't necessarily, necessarily a bad thing, but at times I think that we use these words so much we forget what they mean and forget their true meaning. A few months ago, me and Avery were on a date, and we were downtown, and we were outside on the patio, and there was a street preacher out there. And I don't remember what all he said, but I bet you he read Luke 13, Verse 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And maybe you can remember a hellfire sermon that talked about repentance and turning from your sin so that you can be saved. 
So I want us to take a look at Jesus and John's message and see what exactly they meant by repent. And so I first want to get a clear view of what this means in its definition, how Strong's defines it, and then I want to give us three actionable things, three aspects of repentance that will help us understand what true repentance is. So we see that Jesus was continuing the message that John started, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was teaching repentance. He was teaching repentance for the thing that was to come, that is Jesus Christ and the announcement of this kingdom. As we break this down to what this means, Strong's defines it, if we, we look at the nuts and bolts of what it means, it says to repent, uh, repent is to think differently or afterwards, that is reconsider, or morally to feel compunction. And if you're like me, you didn't know what compunction meant, and that you had to go look that up too. A sharp uneasiness caused by a sense of guilt. This pretty well matches up what probably most of us had in our head. To morally uh, feel, uh, have our conscience violated or to have morally a sense of guilt. But at its root meaning, it's basically a compound word to mean a change of mind, to have a mind change. The root word of repent in the Greek is about your mind. And so we see it used this way in the Hebrew, especially the King James translation. There's a few different occasions where it talks about God repenting of judgment that he had on a certain people. And I think the modern translations have gotten away from that word repent because repent seems to have a, uh, a connotation of our response to God or how we respond to God. But as we think about the context in which Jesus and John were preaching the message of repentance... We can look at it in, in uh, respect to the good news that they were spreading. The good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop what you're doing. Change your ways because the king is here. And as Jesus preaches about the kingdom, it becomes clear that we have to align our value structure to that of the kingdom. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we hear messages of repentance, messages of changing our ways. We also see that it's got this moral response to it as well. And so we see countless examples in the Bibles when someone is, has their sin brought before them, that there's extreme grief and sorrow and a change in their life. And so uh, both of these perspectives point to our first point, and that repentance is a response to God. In their message, they said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. John called the people to repentance. It's expected for us to repent as well. We see what a changed life looks like as Jesus preaches about the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that uh, repentance, as we read through the Bible, we read through the New Testament, that it is a key foundational principle to responding to what God has offered us. Hebrews, whenever it talks about uh, the foundational principles, it says repentance from dead works is one of those foundational principles. And so our response is a response toward God, a response to align ourselves with Him, align ourselves with His value set. In Romans 2, verse 4, it says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? As we think about the goodness of God, God's kindness, what has God done for us? God is faithful. God is good. He is merciful. 
We talked about the, uh, Justin talked about the abundant mercy that he has shown us last week. Not of anything that we did or we deserve, but that God has graciously offered that to us. He's made provisions for us to be adopted as his children. He sent his only son to become human like us, to experience the things that we experienced so that we could be redeemed by his blood. And he raised him on the third day so we could be raised to new life. God has done so much good for us. As we think about repentance, Paul makes out the point here that the goodness of God, the good things he's done for us, lead us to repentance, lead us to actionable change. We know that repentance often comes from the moral feeling that we get. We get fear. Uh, We have fear and sorrow that that motivates us. But what Paul is pointing at here is that we need to have an attitude of gratitude, that gratitude is key in repentance. It's shown out that in studies that if you are grateful, if you practice gratitude, literally counting out your blessings, then it leads to a happier, healthier life. Physical health improves. Mental health improves. It reduces negative emotions. It replaces those with positive emotions. So it shouldn't be any mystery to us why uh, Paul calls us to respond to the goodness of God. If we think about the great things that he has done for us, it takes the attention off of ourselves and it puts our focus back on God. And so it's good to be convicted of the, uh, by the sorrow that comes with sin, and that's one of the motivators. But I want us to shift our focus to God and think about the things He's done for us. Another thing Paul points out in 2 Corinthians is that there's two types of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, or excuse me, 7, verses 7 through 10. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were not made, or excuse me, you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul points out there's two kinds of sorrow. There's one that's good that actually leads to repentance, leads to a response towards God, but there's a worldly sorrow, a sorrow of the world that leads to death. That seems a bit counterintuitive. Our sorrow and our conscience is there to help us move us in the right right direction, to change our behavior, to change our actions. I remember back in junior high, we had this uh, super nice old band director, and he was just there because he loved to teach. His name was Mr. Bartley. And Mr. Bartley uh, was often very nice, just liked to cut up and have fun, but as junior high students can do, sometimes we pushed him to his limits. And he would kind of fly off the handle and get angry with somebody, and they'd say, I'm sorry, Mr. Bartley. He said, no, you're not sorry, because if you were sorry, you would never do it again. And I think Mr. Bartley hit something there. Maybe intentionally, maybe not, but the point is that sorrow does not always mean that I'm never going to do it again. It doesn't even mean that I'm going to change my ways. And in the case of junior high students, they were probably didn't feel any remorse at all about the situation. But there's a sorrow that only leads to worsening behavior. And these two types of sorrow, as as maybe the academics will describe it, are guilt and shame. Shame is this worldly sorrow that actually leads to worsening behavior. So we want to distinguish shame from guilt. If we look at shame, it's associated with negative emotions about oneself, feelings of inadequacy, Saying to yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'm unredeemable. I'm a loser. 
I can't get anything right, and I'm worthless. You see, worldly sorrow is this. This is what Paul is talking about. Not only that, these are in direct contradiction to what God has shown us in the Scriptures, what God has done for us. He has shown faith in us by sending His Son. He believes that you can change. He believes that you are worth something. And so these are a lie from the devil. They're a lie. A lie that he tells us to keep us in our sinful behavior. As you look at shame and and the research that's been associated with that, it actually is associated with addictions. It's associated with secrecy. It's associated with depression. And it actually fuels these things because the only way to make myself feel better is I engage in those same activities over and over. It's a soothing effect. I think this is the case of pornography use, is that it tends to drive you back because you want to do that in secrecy. It's something that we're ashamed of. And so shame keeps us from sharing our struggles. It keeps us from being open about that. We think that I'm the only one dealing with this. I'm the only one that has these issues. And if you're feeling this way, let me offer you some encouragement. Paul felt the same way. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As he describes the struggle that he has uh, to do the things that he wants, follow after God and his law, he finds that his flesh drives him to a different behavior. His flesh drives him to sin. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who can save me? Who can deliver me? What does he do right after that? He shifts his focus to God. He says, I thank God. God can deliver me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so immediately, Paul takes the focus off of himself, and he puts it back on God. It's rightful place. And he shows us that we're going to mess up, that we're not going to get it right all the time. But he calls us to live after the Spirit and not the flesh. And he goes on to say in chapter 8 that those who walk in the Spirit have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So we have the distinguishing factor between shame and guilt. Guilt is focused on my actions, how my actions affected somebody else, how my actions affected my relationship with God, how my actions affected my relationship with my fellow man. And so it says, this is how I messed up. I let you down. And here's how I'm going to fix it. Guilt leads us to action. If we think about David, he turned his focus from himself towards God. In Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. David hurt other people in sinning with Bathsheba, killing Uriah. But he turned his focus towards God and first repaired his relationship with God. And we need to have the same response. Get the attention off of ourselves, put it back on God and our fellow man. And this leads to true repentance. It's not about my perceived self-worth, but it's about responding to the mercy and the love that God has shown me. And so responding indicates a certain action. And the second part of repentance is that it's accompanied with action. We see in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he tells the Pharisees there, bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's fruits, there's things that come from repentance. Paul describes it this way in Acts 26, 20. He was preaching that they should do works befitting repentance. There are things that we've got to do that are in line or in accordance with repentance. 
And that's the simple truth. And I think that this action part is maybe where we get jammed up a little bit. I think that we can have this, this idea that we have a personal, our personal relationship with God. I don't really involve my brothers and sisters in that. I don't involve other people. And God's got me covered. And this is certainly what a lot of Christians sell today, is I have my personal relationship with God. And I think that leads to uh, feelings of, you know, I don't need to change. I don't need to do anything different because God's got it all covered. And I think we saw this displayed here in the last week. Did you know that Jesus had his own Super Bowl commercial? They spent, some ad agency spent somewhere around $17 million to have a commercial about Jesus. And I want to show you a few of the images. It's, it's He Gets Us is the line of advertising, but it's talking about how Jesus relates to us. And we have some of the images that were shown here, and it shows everybody, uh, several different people washing each other's feet. And maybe um, some interesting scenarios here pop up. We've got this woman who looks like she's a migrant getting off in a nice neighborhood. We've got the woman sitting here at an abortion clinic with protesters in the background, and both of these folks have someone washing their feet. Or this black man who has a police officer washing his feet. Or this more feminine-looking man having a priest wash his feet. And so I think people tend to focus on the brighter side of Jesus or the uh, more comfortable side of Jesus. And the commercial ends with this emphatic, dramatic statement, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. Is that all Jesus did? Now, there's two sides of me, the optimist and the pessimist on what their angle was on this, but it seems to highlight the convenient parts of Jesus. Yes, Jesus probably would have washed all these people's feet. He would have met them at the place they are and helped them in their scenario. And yes, Jesus didn't teach hate, but he taught repentance. He would have left every one of these people telling them to repent. Turn away from your sin. Go and sin no more. I heard somebody put it this way as Jesus washed Judas's feet, but he still condemned him. And so Jesus and God call us to repentance, call us to action. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Christ calls you to repentance. And God is long-suffering, He's patient, and He is kind, but there is a day of judgment coming. A day of judgment where your sin will be brought before you, and God will judge you based on your sin and judge you whether or not you have repented and come to Jesus Christ, His Son. There will be a time where His patience runs out. And so we've got to produce fruit evident of repentance. And so the question is, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like whenever we have a repentant attitude? I think in in the Old Testament specifically, we see almost a standard operating procedure or a protocol that comes with repentance. It often looks like Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. We consistently see this practice of when people have their sin brought before them. They practice in self-denial and fasting, with mourning, with weeping, with prayer. They would often rend their clothes. 
They would sit in sackcloth and ashes and pray to God in an attitude, in actions of repentance. It was like a procedure that they had developed to help push them in the right direction. Paul fasted for three days after encountering Christ on the road to Damascus. The Ninevites proclaim a fast in all the land. And these were protocols or actions that they had for repentance. Do we have protocols for repentance? Do you have protocols for repentance? I think that we have the basics down pretty well, especially for a new Christian, as we preach repentance from dead works, to be baptized with Jesus Christ. But when we're all hit with something hard and we're struggling with sin, do we have a protocol that we follow? I think it would be good for us to remember these things that are taught here. Fasting, mourning, rending our heart, turning our heart back toward God. As we look at the baptism of John, verses 5 and 6 show us that those who went out to him were baptized by him in the Jordan and confessing their sins. They were there confessing their sins, confessing the things that they had done wrong. James chapter 5, verse 6 also picks up on this. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Maybe this is the most difficult part of repentance, confessing our faults to each other. This is really difficult. I don't like to admit that I've messed up. I don't like to admit that I've got bad habits, that I have my own things in my heart that need to be changed. But we have the admonition and the direction here that confessing our faults is an act of repentance. I think that as I began to study this, it was certainly something that I started studying because I felt like there were some things I needed to change in my life. That I was following after things of the flesh and not things of the Spirit. And so the instruction we have here is to confess our faults to one another. Find people in your life, whether that be the elders, whether that be somebody close to you, someone who is older and wiser, that you can confess your faults to. That you can be open and honest and clear about how you've sinned, what you've done. Because we talked about shame. Shame wants to keep these things secret. And the research shows that whenever we are open, that is the antidote to shame. When I'm open about my faults and failures, I open myself up for help, for someone to give me instruction, to give me help, to help me through something that maybe they have had experience with. First John tells us that if we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us. And so let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with others, and let's be honest with God. Nobody's perfect, so let's not act like it. We're all sinners. We all have faults. This is why we offer an invitation at the end of each service, is to give people the opportunity to kickstart that process of repentance. Give someone the opportunity to come and let us know that you need help. And whatever that is, whether it's repentance or something else, the church is here to pray for you. And effective, fervent prayer avails much. It's going to help you. It will help you with your struggles. And we need to be there for each other, checking in on each other, and helping each other be open and honest. And the last thing that we see in actions uh, towards repentance is reconciliation. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24 says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there 
before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. As Jesus is talking about making things right, He says if you've wronged anybody, before you come and, and offer your worship to God, go be reconciled to your brother. And so part of repentance is that we make amends. We go and apologize. Say, I'm sorry. You make restitution as possible. Make reconciliation. Ask for their forgiveness. We see that Zacchaeus had a repentance in his life at some point when he said, you know, there were people that I defrauded and I went and, and repaid them and gave them extra on top of what I defrauded them. Zacchaeus had a change. He made restitution in his life. And so we see that these things are difficult and, and they are hard and that's okay. And Christ calls us in repentance that these things will be continual, they'll be drastic, and they'll be evident. And that's our third point here. Uh, repentance is drastic, it's evident, and it's continual. There's a continual process with this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30 says, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Jesus is, I suppose, making hyperbole here and saying that if your hand offends you, get rid of it. It's better for you to enter into life than to enter into death. And so we've got to take drastic measures. And ultimately, that is going to be worth it. You can live with it, or you can learn to live without it. You can learn to, you can perish with your sin, perish with the things that you hold on to so tightly. There's a story about uh, raccoons. It's called Where the Red Fern Grows. It's actually more about a kid and his two dogs. But it's all about uh, trapping and hunting raccoons. And his grandfather describes this trap, this raccoon trap, and it's got a hole in it, and you place something shiny in there that's going to grab his attention, and that raccoon's going to come in, and the hole is just small enough that he can fit his paw in, but as soon as he grabs the bait, his fist is too big where he can't pull his, his paw out. And he's stuck there, and as long as he holds on to that bait, he's stuck there. And so the raccoon has two choices. He can either let it go and walk away freely, or he can die with that worthless piece of tinfoil. And so the choice is set before us today. Often we hold on to things that are so worthless when we think about them. And I think, I need this thing. Like, I can't go without it. It's not that bad. Like, I'm, I'm going to hang on to it. Christ tells us to let go of those things. And sometimes we can't even, can't even see the harm that it causes us. That you're set, uh, sitting there stuck in this trap, and I can't even tell of the danger that's coming for me. And so we've got to also watch out for one another. But whatever it is in your life, understand that that's worthless compared to the good things that God offers us. Let those things go and grab on to something better, something more important. We've got to learn to live a life after the Spirit, not after the flesh. We say that repentance also produces an evident change. In our lives. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which, which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Repentance is a work, and it means that it's going to take some time for us to uh, change our lives. But what 
Paul points out here as he's talking about the temptation to take advantage of the grace that God has offered us. He says, God be thanked that you obeyed that doctrine. Brenton talked about this doctrine, including baptism. But what else was a part of that doctrine? Well, he answers it in the next sentence. He says, you've been set free from sin and you become servants or slaves of righteousness. Part of that doctrine is repentance from dead works. He says, you were servants of sin, but now you're servants of righteousness. And it was clear and evident in their life that something had changed. They were living their life by a different standard. They were living their life and it produced a drastic and evident change in their life. We understand this concept pretty well when we see someone for the first time after they've lost a bunch of weight. Like, hey, you look good. I saw a guy a few years ago. It was the first time I'd seen him in three years, a salesman at work, and he was at least 60 pounds lighter. And I was like, hey, you look great, man. We noticed that. It's evident. And so is the same as someone who gives their life to Christ and turns from their sin. I've got a friend uh, from high school. He was a year older than me. And he came to WT for his first year of college, and he wasn't a, a major troublemaker or anything, but he, he wasn't living his life for Christ. And he got here, and he joined a fraternity, and I was talking to him about that, and he was like, oh, no, man, it's, it's great. They, they make sure I keep going to classes. I've got to keep my grades up, or I don't get to participate, and all these great things that the fraternity offered him. But it also, I think, offered him some partying, and he got into some habits that eventually led him to drop out of school. Fast forward several years, this man now has given his life to Christ, and there's a newfound joy that I see in him every single day. And it's amazing to see what Christ has done for this guy. And he goes and he preaches the gospel to other people now. And all that change is because of Christ. And as we think back to the definition, we think about changing our mind or changing our direction it's a change of heart, and it's this change of action, change of how we align our value structure. And the th thing that keeps coming up in the Scriptures is living this life after the Spirit, not after the flesh. In Galatians 5, verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. When I walk in the Spirit, when I walk after God and the Spirit that He's given me through Jesus Christ, I'm not going to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Those things are going to start dwindling. But what increases? Fast forward to verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit produces, are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we walk by the Spirit, these things begin to increase in our lives. And the desire to fulfill the lust of the flesh will diminish. These things, wouldn't it be great to have more of these things in your life? Living by the Spirit, living a repentant life, is increasing the Spirit and decreasing the flesh. He says, Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so, how do they do it? We crucify the flesh. We're at war with the flesh and its desires, the things that it would push us to do. As he makes this analogy of crucifying the flesh, it's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be easy, but it will be worth it. We have to take measures to remove temptation from our lives, to get rid of those things, and we need to war against the flesh. These things lead you to a better life here and a better life in the eternal hereafter. 
So it's not instant, but these things are continual. They're continual in us choosing daily to live after the Spirit. As we conclude, one thing that I thought of as I saw the definition of of this being a mind-centered thing, a mind or heart-centered thing, is Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's the same root word of repentance, is renewing your mind, the, the word mind there. And so I think Paul was hitting on repentance here. It's renewing your mind, daily changing your mind to align yourself with God, align yourself with the Spirit. And so as we go back and review what we've talked about, it, repentance is a response to God. It's a response in fear and sorrow, but it's also a response in gratitude for the great things that he's done. It's getting the focus off of myself, my own perceived self-worth, and focusing on God, my response to God, my actions as it relates to God and my fellow man. Whenever we repent, we have to give ourselves to fasting, to prayer, turning our face towards God, to confession and to restitution. And then we need to take drastic actions and continue in the Spirit. And whenever we do that, we'll see that these things will be evident in our lives. It'll be evident that you're living a changed life, that you're different than you were before. Look down several years down the road and see a dramatic change in your life. And so now we offer the invitation, a call that if you're struggling with sin, if you've got something that you need help getting rid of, we can offer prayers on your behalf. And that doesn't mean that you have to come up here and and tell us what, what you've done. I do encourage you to do that privately or with somebody uh, that you know you can trust or that can help you. But we offer this invitation as a way to help you get that started. It's a procedure. It's a protocol that we take to, that's going to spur you to action, knowing that your brothers and sisters are there for you and praying for you. And if you're not a Christian today, you've got to obey, obey the form of doctrine that was preached. Christ calls you to repentance. He's there to meet you where you are, but he calls you to live a different life, to live by the kingdom, to live by him. And the last thing that we see is that in uh, talking about John the Baptist, he said, there's someone coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2.38, Peter said unto them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Christ calls you to repentance. He calls you to baptism today to live a life that's after the Spirit, to turn away from the flesh. The Spirit of God gives you life, but the Spirit of the world and of the flesh brings forth death. Won't you repent today? Please come as we stand and sing.